Good morning and welcome to Sales Leadership Live. I'm joined today by one of Europe's top sales expert, experts, Tom Castley. And I recorded a podcast with Tom, oh, a couple of months back, and it is to this day the highest rating podcast I've ever done, surpassing all others, including the legendary Guru Ganesh. And if you haven't watched that podcast, I'd encourage you to check it out. It was just chock full of insight and colorful stories from Tom's incredible sales career. And it also generated a lot of questions. So I invited Tom back today to talk about that and specifically talk about sales team performance. Tom, you're very welcome back. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. No, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure at all. We're live. Uh, Tom, I wanted to start off and ask you, um, first of all, if we break down sales team performance, let's talk a little bit about team, first of all, and how mm. important is team, that element of team as a consideration in terms of you know, driving revenue? Uh, yeah, it's a, and it's an interesting one just in terms of the fact that most sales reps are paid commission based on their individual performance. But we know as sales leaders and mature sales reps will also understand this in a startup context. If only one of you is smashing your number, the job gets pretty difficult. And actually, if the whole team is driving good performance, you have more references, you have more buzz in the market, and actually it gets easier for everybody. So it's it's a real dichotomy for sales leaders to kind of create that team atmosphere uh, whilst recognizing that it's individual performance that tends to get remunerated. And how do you address that dichotomy? Uh, well, one is actually just that education of uh, number one is, you know, if we're all winning, actually everybody's job gets easier. Um, the second one for me is uh, just building that desire to – I've always said there are, there are some sales reps who go through their career doing their number – but they're never really, they never achieve any kind of notoriety within their peer groups. And that's because they didn't do it the right way. They didn't do it in a way that has swagger or, uh, and what I mean by swagger is, is, uh, you know, they, they don't get the case studies. Their customers don't produce press releases. Their, um, their, um, uh, their, their, their prospects and their customers don't end up um, talking on stage at events and what have you. And uh, building that recognition model in for the sales reps, a lot of that then creates that team culture. I want the exposure. I want the notoriety because um, a lot of salespeople are fairly self-centered, arrogant, egotistical individuals, <laughs> myself included. Yeah. And so, what, what are you saying then that as as a leader, your job then is also to be the PR, not be the PR person, but at least have an eye to PR across the team? Because some people, I would imagine, naturally are good at that. They're they're good at bigging themselves up within the organization. Others just quietly get on with the job, 
And if I understood you correct, what you're saying, it's really important that as a team, that everybody gets equal access to or a fair crack of the whip when it comes to the case studies, having customers uh, speak on yeah, stage. It's, it, it's, not about, it's not about the salesperson. Uh, exactly the same as with the sales leader. You know, it's a, if, if, if my team do well, you know, I've always said uh, one of my mantras is, is my job is to make my team look as good as they possibly can. Theirs is to make sure I never look like an idiot doing it. Yeah. And, um, you know, when there's, when there's a deal, a big deal that's won, uh, we all know, all good leaders know that you uh, send the plaudits to the rep and the good news floats up. It's not about mm -hmm. me. It's not about what I did. It's actually about what the team members do. Same mm -hmm. with sales reps. Um, uh, you know, I loved your book. Uh, book was it? Uh, uh, hard asses. What's the uh, the, uh, <laughs> the soft tails and hard asses? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Thank you. Uh, I do have it on my bookshelf over here. And um, you know what? What that made um, uh, you know very clear is it's it's not about it's not about the reps' performance. It's about their customer and what the customer managed to do with it. They're the hero in the story. And you know the reps that create notoriety. It's not about their performance. That's a given. It's the fact that there are a bunch of customers out there that talk about the impact that the solutions that they sold them had. And and if you can build that across your sales team, and people are talking about uh, you know the, the benefits that they're getting, that that serves everybody well. You know, we're very fortunate here at Outreach. You know, when somebody says, oh, can I have a, a reference for this, rather than it being tumbleweed and, and then everybody says, oh, well, we need to go back to the one customer who's willing to talk about us. You know, there's normally 15, 20 companies that are banded around and say, well, you can talk to any one of these. Yeah. Uh, that, that really helps with that team performance. Yeah. And I'm curious then about the toxic element of teams because – very often, there's, it's like a virus gets into the team. Sometimes you'll see it in, it's the individual who operates with no respect for the team. And often they're difficult because they're sometimes high performance. And then on the other side, you'll get somebody who's so negative that they're trying to drag the team down because if nobody performs, then they don't feel like they're the tall pole. And what I wanted to understand is, is, is how you identified, I mean, obviously, if we, if we can root those out at the beginning and not bring them into the team, and I, we'll, we'll have a whole entire session on hiring yeah. and recruiting. So, so preventing it is obviously the best uh, way of dealing with it. But when it does happen, how do you spot it and how do you deal with it? That's what I'm really interested in. Yeah, so you're, you're picking up on my deep, and I so end with the start in mind, which is... Uh, I've already hired some bad people. I didn't learn. I didn't, I didn't know about hiring practices to not have these people in my team. Or you may have inherited a team that's got a few of those individuals. Look, um, you know, if, if people are toxic and you're noticing it, uh, my coaching to you is your team are already very, very aware of it. And it's incumbent upon us uh, to rip off the sticking plaster quickly. Um, obviously, having had the conversation, I've had it before where the person was just unaware of the influence they were having. And when you told them, I mean, they were upset, shocked, disgusted, couldn't believe it. 
and uh, and they address their behavior very quickly. Um, but if it's not addressed, then yeah, you know that 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 needs yeah, that needs sorting out rather quickly. But the the second side of it, um, you um, I think you're referring to kind of the, the mavericks of a sales team, the people who sell their way and keep selling lots of business. Uh, and I've lost count of the number of sales leader conversations I've had over a beer where we go. The moment this person misses, they're out because they are <laughs> terrible to manage. But I can't afford to get rid of them while they're while they're delivering good revenue. And um, uh, it might be a slight tangent, but I have a different way of looking at those people. It's a different lens on it. So if it, it, it's the traditional Boston box that most people look at on this. On the, on the y-axis is performance. So down at the bottom is low and it's high, and then on the x-axis, on the left, it's they're doing it their way, and on the right is they're doing it our way. Mm. And so if you're bottom left, you're failing and you're doing it your way, uh, you know, exit stage left. Yep. Uh, if they're doing it our way and not performing, it's a coaching opportunity and you're trying to get them up to the top right, which is called promote, mm. uh, which is they're doing it our way and smashing their numbers. And then uh, top left is that maverick column. Mm. And, um, you know, scale, uh, aggressive scale requires the majority of people to be in that promote box because then you can have consistency of practice, processes, procedures. Um, working with a lady called Dr. Helen Taylor, who's uh, an archaeologist at Cambridge University, who's very badly dyslexic like me, she was looking at cognitive diversity in survival uh, in terms of, you know, kind of you know, tribes and stuff thousands, millions of years ago. And saying that actually you need um, kind of the people who are, she calls it the, the exploitation exploration trade off. So the top left who are doing it our way and 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 smashing their numbers, you could suggest are the exploiters. They're exploiting a given process procedure and um, what have you, and then nailing it, and they're going at a million miles an hour. But the market moves like it did 18 months ago, sudden massive change. And all of those exploiters could have just like lemmings gone off a cliff. And uh, the explorers, the mavericks, with the right balance and with very good leadership can actually be the, the inventive loop that actually keeps the exploiters uh, absolutely tuned to where the market is today. And so I'd encourage uh, sales leaders to think about, okay, what would, rather than thinking of them as mavericks, which is a very negative context, is to say, well, if I had the right balance, you know, startup where we're looking at, um, you know, product market fit and um, we're trying to work out where we're getting to uh, and we don't necessarily have a playbook, I might actually want a few more mavericks and less exploiters because there's nothing to exploit yet. But as I get more developed and as the market starts to grow and what have you, then obviously the balance needs to be addressed. Uh, and it's that element of team performance which really kind of sets me alight. And yeah. I know other, you know, there's a few other sales leaders who I'm pretty close to in London who are, you know, really get this. This is like the the the, 
that that pinnacle of sales leadership where they're trying to create balanced teams. Yeah. Unlike you know the England football team of history where they just picked the eleven best players and they didn't they didn't only not play well together. They didn't like each other either. <laughs> but they won a World Cup. Uh, yeah, and more recent history. Think think late nineties, early two thousands, Lampard, you know, Gerard time of era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, fair, fair point. Um, I'm fascinated by this, and I'd like to spend a bit more time on it, if you if you don't mind, because what I'm hearing is, if you think about the the explorers, the the the, we'll call, the we won't call them mavericks anymore. I like that term, the explorers. Yeah. I guess that that can come in two different forms. Well, actually, explorers don't, because by nature of the word itself, means that they're creative, adaptive forward thinking whereas often the mavericks who may be making their numbers but they do so at the expense of others where the explorers are doing it their way but they're doing it their way because they're finely tuned to both their own self-awareness of who they are and also who they're dealing with and maybe then they've They've, they've adapted faster. So I love that idea that if you pay attention, it actually, and, and you can capture where they're adapting and what they're doing differently and what they notice. Because I was listening, uh, and, and again, it's on topic, but it's, it's nothing to do with sales. It was somebody I was, actually, it was the chief scientist at Pfizer. He's no longer working with Pfizer, but I watched a YouTube video he did, and he said that, uh, one of the things that got him promoted quickly through the organization to VP of uh, VP level in, in Pfizer was he could spot patterns where others couldn't. Mm. And I think that's true as also in those explorers is that they can spot patterns in, in, in the marketplace, in preferences that they adapt to. And other people see it as, oh, they're off doing their own thing. But in reality, if they're, if they're coming from a, a good place, mm. not, not the maverick, not being destructive, not kind of sticking to something because that's the way I've always done it, but genuinely, I, I love this. I love, I had never thought of it that way before. Um, see, this is why you're, you're on, Tom. You're just a <laughs> chock full of insight. I absolutely love this. Uh, yeah, it's a completely different. I think we need to change our language around, well, there around is, that. You know, there's an element of, um, you know, sales, time, territory, talent, and target. We've spoken about that over the years. You know, the four T's of uh, am I going to be successful as a sales rep in a company? Yeah. And, you know, uh, maybe a, 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 I'm trying to think of a T that talks about the way I think, am I a maverick or not? But, you know, the, uh, there, is, there is the perspective of the leader. Is mm. this person being a maverick or are they just a frustrated explorer? And if I actually change my perspective of them as a leader, actually that could completely change the dynamic of that relationship. Mm. And if mm. you gave them permission to go and explore mm. uh, and, and gave them time, it's a bit like, you know, even my kids at school, they have playtime. You know, we come into the classroom, you need to do it our way. But by the way, you can go out at lunchtime, you can hoon around like an idiot and do your stuff. Uh, and if you find something that's really cool, can you come back and let us know? Um, mm -hmm. could be a way of managing or, or they're just in the wrong company and and it's incumbent you know I've had um, uh, even a situation here at Outreach you know the first rep 
uh, I hired here uh, in country. Um, I won't mention his name because I didn't talk to him about this beforehand. Um, uh, he's fantastic. Went to President's Club in his first year here. Uh, and any rep that makes President's Club in their first year is rare anyway. And has set us on a path for how we sell outreach within Europe. And I'm just about to hand him off uh, to another startup, another CRO who I know really well. And uh, he is perfect for where they're at at the moment. Um, but he recognizes the balance of the explorers and exploiters that we have in our business. He was not able to do as much exploring as he wanted to do, didn't have as much freedom of expression and recognized that he needed to come into the into the flock, if you will, and to perform in that way. And he's like, uh, and we had a really serious, you know, kind of like frank conversation. And, and, and I said, I said, we might be round peg square hole. I said, you know, to some extent, what you should be thinking about, is that a niche that I can develop as a rep? I mean, if you could create a brand, which is I'm the first rep on the ground for American software companies when they launch in Europe, and I deliver a million dollars of revenue for you in the first year, I said, that's worth equity, it's worth salary, and it's worth you know a, a great commission check. I said, mm. go off and develop that as your niche. And it's, it's pretty cool, and there's not many people who can do it. Mm. But that right there, Tom, also is, is true leadership. There's not too many people would do that. Uh, that's, 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 that's remarkable. It really is to, to have that conversation with somebody and to create it so that they don't feel like they're being judged as a fish in terms of how they climb a tree, for mm. example. And uh, that, that's, yeah, great story, actually. Really, really um, powerful. Love it. Um, and it prompted a question that I had, but it's gone straight out of my mind. So maybe <laughs> while it comes back, I can go on. I have a few more questions I'd like to go through around teams. I, I, I guess where I was going with that was around the idea of you creating a, a, an environment and being aware of what that environment is too. That if it is an environment, because you're in a mature market or a maturing market where process and structure is is paramount. Mm. Not, I, again, people will often overlook that element, I think, and I'll be yeah. curious to know what, what you think, when they're hiring and they just look at, well, how did you do in your last job without giving enough thought to, well, is, is this going to be a fish out of water? Is, you know, even yeah. though they produced you know, at, a, at a very high level, are we the right organization for them? I don't know mm. that, that that's always... Uh, I'm sure it is to some extent considered. Uh, it's, yeah, it's the longest interview in our process. It's two hours long, the cultural interview. Okay. Uh, and yeah, about 30% of people fail it. Um, but they, okay. they fail it for, for the right, for them and for us. You know, okay. who wants a Paul Pogba? You know, great footballer, plays the right position, just hates the weather in Manchester, hates Manchester. I think he hates the players, the manager. It's like, <laughs> you're never going to get the best out of that individual. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you're, you, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of, one of the diseases in sales as a whole is um, we, we measure its success at the, at the, end, of the, at the end of the race. 
you know, yes. and, um, you know, we've spoken in the past about, you know, even like we'll use the tennis analogy because it's a good one in Sandler about the, you know, it's a five set match. It ends up 13, 11 in the last set. That's the kind of negotiation that everybody enjoys if it's done in an empathetic and, uh, and sensitive way and what have you. But, uh, you know, uh, a lot of sales deals are like that five sets and 13, 11. And, you know, when, when the player loses at the end, you know, if the typical sales approach, well, they lost that one. That's another one they lost. And, and just, lo and just lost sight of the fact of all of the goodness that went into that uh, mm -hmm. and how much they'd improved over, you know, the previous time and how actually it, if they can do that again, uh, the process will end up improving their metrics. They'll end up winning more and more stuff. Uh, but it's that process dependency versus outcome dependency. You know, uh, trust the process uh, yes. and, and iterate on on the elements of that rather than uh, just focusing on, you know, kind of the win rate at the end of it. Yeah. I, I think we've kind of dwelt on the next question I had, Tom, which was around the consideration from a team perspective versus the individual in terms of getting that balance right. It's important that we create the team environment, that there's a cultural fit. And it's interesting to say that you have a, uh, a, a part of your interviewing process that's dedicated to that fit. And then it's around, I want to talk a little bit more now about managing individuals because at some, some level, the team is a collective of individuals. Yes, if it's done right, the, the synergy values are going to be there for sure. And the what do they say? The the, the sum is better than this. The, the what's that? The you know the what I'm trying to say. The parts is greater than the whole. The whole, yeah. The, that was the word I was looking for. It was the whole. Yeah, is greater than the sum of the parts for sure. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about the components of performance and where organizations spend their time and maybe where you feel. They ought to spend a little bit more. And what I'm talking about there are, as you look at the behaviors that reps do consistently, the ones who perform well, what are they? What do they look like? When you look at the techniques and skill sets they have to master. And then the third area is around mindset, which I want to explore a bit further with you as well, because mm -hmm. the other two, in some respect, you can measure somewhat. But mm. the mindset, I'm fascinated to get your insights on that. But let's talk first of all about your own framework for performance management. What would that look like? Yeah, so I, uh, I do like uh, this frequencies times competencies equals results. Uh, and has served me well. So the, the first thing there is, uh, it is absolutely imperative as sales leaders that we can break down the game into its constituent parts. If you can't, you have no right to be a sales leader. What I mean by that is, you know, I, and I had this situation just this past week where I've got, um, we've just promoted some SDRs into, uh, into growth AE roles. So they're account managers for our install base. And, you know, they get a couple of hundred customers each. And it's like rabbits in the headlights. Like, you know, where, where do I start? Uh, if I call all 200, it'll be the end of the year before I've done that. You know, there's like, you know, 15 contacts in each. 
you know, their SDRs, they kind of know their process. If I do this many calls a day and I won't have sold anything. And so you need to give them formulas to help them break down the success into bite-sized chunks. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about that on, on a separate one in terms of how do I break up my territory and work out where to focus my time. Um, but the key is, as a sales leader, we have um, uh, a bunch of tactics, experience, and tools that help to demystify what selling looks like. Break down the 1.8 seconds of a golf swing to the you know the 15,000 things that you need to think about as you go through, but make it accessible and sensible. And so the frequencies and competencies works for me. So you have uh, typically outcomes. There might be six or seven outcomes that you're looking for. Revenue is a good one. Number of one logos might be another one. Uh, ultimately, they, they are uh, components of their comp plan and a couple of components that relate to that swagger I was talking about. Number of customers who become a reference, for example, could be, a, could be an outcome. Frequencies are things that if you do it more often will contribute to your success. And competencies are skills that if you enhance them will also contribute to your success. Cool. And if you get it right, you have the competencies closely aligned to the frequencies. So if I do more of that better, my results will come. So frequency might be uh, I need to be having uh, more conversations with, uh, in my business, CROs, so chief revenue officers and chief sales officers. Competences would be uh, to be able to talk uh, numbers better, you know, to be talking about ROI and benchmarks and data. Because the fact is, if you're talking to CROs, you know, they live in the numbers, they live, you know, they're talking about, uh, rather than pain so much, it's typically gains and fears, which is, you know, fear of something that happened last year happening again or gains is, you know, we're about to start investing in growth and I need that to work in the next six months and put some numbers behind it. And so when you start to codify that, uh, that can help really drive that individual performance and gives people the roadmap. Uh, and a track record to see, well, okay, are those frequencies and competencies, as I'm improving them and the scores are improving, are the results improving? And if there's a direct correlation, then you've got a really good balance. Mm. Now, in terms of the competencies, frequencies, yeah, that's that's a no-brainer. Te yeah. Competencies, it becomes a little bit, okay, they're well-defined. One of the things I've, I've, I've often amazed me, and I'm sure I suffer from this like anybody, that if you then define those competencies and ask 10 people in a room to document what they understood by a specific competency, you might get many, many different answers. How do you control that so that if you were to ask 10 reps on your team what they, meant, what they understood by a particular competency, how do, you, how, do you, how do you control that so that everybody's on the same page? That's part A. Part B then is there is no pain there is no gain, I should say, without pain. How do you get them up that curve on competency where they own it as quickly as possible? Is it, is it all training? Is it all on the job? Is it a blend? What do you look for? So start with A, first of all, in terms of making sure that everybody has the same understanding. Yeah, well, uh, again, clarity and alignment, you're absolutely right, is key. 
um, half of that is uh, you know uh, having having team meetings over Zoom obviously these days. Although I'm, my team are coming into the office a lot more, um, uh, and having them explain to each other what's going on. Uh, the other one we spoke about this last time when somebody comes up with a good idea about something. Um, I love Dave Marquette from Turn the Ship Around, which is a great book. I love it. Leadership principles are brilliant. Uh, but one of those things is move decisions to the point of information was one of his quotes. So push it down. So if somebody comes up with a great idea, rather than telling me and then I go and tell the group, I will always say to them, oh, have you shared that with the group? At least then they're getting the first-hand version of it rather than the second or the third-hand version. Ooh. So that creates a lot of alignment. Uh, two is having consistency at those competences across the group. Um, and, you know, the beauty of having, you know, kind of call recording functionality that, uh, that we have uh, allows you to then see that in practice. Mm. Uh, second thing, uh, you know, you can't, you know, 50% of a first-line leader's job is coaching. Uh, and that's and I know you and I kind of understand what I mean. But that's not 50 percent of my time is sat on sales calls, taking over calls and being the phenomenally superb rep. I probably was historically and carrying my reps, kicking and screaming to a great number. Uh, that's 50 percent of the time helping them be great. Uh, and you should go unnoticed on those calls. And. Uh, and it's taken them through, and I, I, you know, using that just last week, the kind of that Sandler kind of notion, which is, you know, I, I understand it, uh, I now know it, and now, or I've learnt it, I now use it, uh, and now it's in the core of my being. I live it, and I've been told by by some of the teams, even some of the most junior people who join our business, when we're taking them through kind of like the scripts, like, you know, hey, you know, uh, hi, this is Tom Castley, you know, calling from Outreach. And it's a sales call. Have I filled you with excitement and anticipation? You know, so the usual opening. And then, you know, typically one of three reasons why you might want to, you know, spend some more time taking a look at Outreach is, you know, pain, fear, gain, whatever. But when they hear me still able to regurgitate that stuff literally uh, like word for word from the manual obviously uh, i have my own version of it when i'm doing cold calling and and they let me loose every now and again but that that level of competency from a leader which they kind of you know aspire to you know to get to um you know during their careers that that also helps to provide that one that desire to get there and they said well you know they've done it and it's got them to this position but um but two is it's that consistency of framework as well if it's just repeated constantly and we're not dipping into different sales systems i was you know, i suppose my last comment on that is and i've seen that in a few organizations is when i ask people so you know what kind of what what process are you using well, we've got a bit of challenger, a bit of salander, and then we're using medic up front. And then uh, we have some elements of command of the message in our first meeting. And then we, you know, we move over to Millerheim and Gold Sheets when it's a bigger deal. And I'm like, my goodness me, <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't keep up with that. You know, yeah. it, you know, 
every software chump, every every sales process tastes like chicken. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of you just there's there's nothing to be gained because otherwise we would have all done it. There's nothing to be mm. gained by merging together 25 different selling systems. Pick one no. and own it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen that before. And again, I think it is important in the context of our topic today around sales team performance to be able to look at the leader's role in that because I have seen, I, I have one particular example in mind where I was stopped by this manager in a corridor once in a building, a uh, company I was working at. And he had said that his reps liked a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And he, he, he gave some names like you did and that this wouldn't work in their market. And we need, and I'm kind of thinking you're buying their bullshit, mate. Yeah. They're just giving you a ton of excuses why they don't want to do the hard graft. And, yeah. and, and I don't see enough. I know enough is a nebulous concept in itself. But I don't see enough people be leaders. I see many managers who are trying to be all supportive and nice to their team. And I'm not saying that isn't important, but what they're not doing is they're not leading. They're not holding people accountable. They're not cutting through the bullshit enough. Mm. Thoughts? Uh, yeah. And the first place I go to there is uh, my, if I, if I'm ever doing some advisory work, the first place I go to is I look at the number of opportunities that sales reps got in a given quarter. And then uh, and I had one recently. I went to a company and I said, yeah, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got 53, 50, was it 53, 54 deals on the go for this quarter. Okay. Mm. What's, the, what's the maximum number of deals you've ever done in a quarter? Um, it's like nine. Okay. So... Let's assume that, you know, you're just going to have another record. Where, where, where could you get to? Uh, well, I think I could do like 12 or 13. All right. Do you think that wasting time on the other 30 odd that you just actually, they might want to buy. They might, Ooh. these might all be great, but there's a certain amount of time, effort and resource that's required to get somebody over the line. There's only so many hours in a day and what have you. Uh, of the 52 or 53 that you've got out there, which 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 are the the 12 or 13 that you'd pick and say these are the, these are the best ones and these are the ones I should be working. Um, two and a half hours, three hours later, you know, literally, it's like it's like watching that episode of uh, Britain's Got Talent where they're moving in, like, you know, this one comes in, oh, well, they've got that one, then that one has to move out, and all the rest of it. Um, it's then then ask them to bring in a couple of other reps say right would, do you agree with this it's got nothing to do with me then they then then when reps start asking other reps questions you then start to find out in a sales process what is and isn't important you know have, are you speaking to the senior people in that organization no no I'm, well i wouldn't have that one in there then and what you start to find out is rather than it becoming a deal review by by me, the three or four other people, they've all got strengths at different areas and different places, and they filter out. And guaranteed of the 12 that they put in, possibly seven would survive, and it's replaced by another lot. Ooh. And then the second part of the exercise is, uh, right, now, now you can pick five substitutes. 
It's like a football team. Well, you got eleven. You got eleven there, and then you pick your five substitutes. Right. Those are your sixteen deals. Mm. Go and phone up every single one of the other ones and ask them if there's any way whatsoever that we can possibly delay the project by a month or so because we're just so busy that um, you know, and we don't feel like we're going to be able to turn up and deliver the kind of service that you deserve and we want to provide. And if they beg you that they can't and justify, then you might consider getting rid of one of the other ones. Yeah. By the way, I'd also phone up the, uh, the 16 or 17 and have exactly the same conversation with them just as a litmus test. Um, but that, that process uh, was an interesting one to go through. You got to love the old strip line on those deals, eh? Oh, it's, uh, even, uh, even if you've only got two deals in the pipeline and you're at 10% of your number, it's yeah. still a great conversation yeah. to have. It is. And I, I, I want to get into this topic on, around mindset in a moment. Now, mindset covers a lot of things, but specifically in this, because I've had that conversation many times, you know, and it's usually in the context of you're coming up to the end of the year. You want to know which deals you, you, you're going to focus on. Have that conversation exactly as you said it. Ask them, can they push it out and, and let them push back? And if they don't, you know, Murphy's Law of Sales, anything that can be delayed will be delayed. Yeah. And so, um, but it takes courage to do that. A lot of people will shy away from having that because they're afraid of how people will respond. I, I, and so I, I want to get into that topic because I think it's hugely impactful on Actually, we could probably do it now because it is so important. And a reminder, I was actually having a podcast conversation with uh, a, a VP of sales, Jennifer Price. She works with a company in the States. And I asked her one characteristic she looks for in people. She said courage. Mm. And so, so when I talk mindset, I'm talking about courage, guts, but also beliefs and values as well. So it's, it's one of those topics that you really have to kind of define, well, what are we talking about here? And it's harder to measure. So again, I, I had a question which was around what are the inputs you measure? You, you talked to me about some of the outputs that you measure, you know, bottom line revenue, wallet share, um, it, th those kind of things. But inputs are different. And so you can say, and, and you said this, frequency. Well, that's an input. Well, frequency of what? Well, now you can have that subcategories. What about mindset, though? When you look at the people who are consistently, perform at a consistent level, they tend to be, on average, more courageous yeah. um, than, than, than others. And, and I say more courageous. It's not, and people mistake this. They, they, they see them as fearless. They're not fearless. They feel the fear. They're just willing to push past it, where for others, the fear often petrifies them. And, and, and so let's talk about that in terms of what you've noticed over the years, what you look for, and how, if at all, you can move that dial. Yeah, when I, when I hear the words fear, though, do you know, I, I, I keep going back. It's not, I've never met a rep who's frightened of losing a deal. They're, 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 they're fearful of the consequences of losing the deal with their boss, their company, and what have you. Um, that's, that's the disease that needs to be addressed here is, is giving, it's giving permission to sales reps 
to stop wasting my company resources on deals that we're not going to win. Because ultimately, if they're fearful and they won't let go and you find out, uh, you know, three days before the end of the sales cycle that we've lost the competition, if you tot up the, the, the opportunity cost of that and all of the resources that have been involved and really think, was it me, either the company or the sales leader, that stopped the rep from disqualifying that because of this fear culture, uh, then, then that's not healthy. And one yeah. of one of my one of my favorite measures, and actually, you know, it, I remember a conversation with uh, I worked for this guy three times, Wayne Fonset, um, and uh, the best sales leader for me early on in my career, because um, uh, it just gave me you know, crystal clear guidance. I remember walking in Cockerhoot one day, I'd I'd, I'd got to twice the win rate of everybody else in the business. So the, the win rate in the business for a startup was about 14%. And I was at like 30% now. I walked in. I'm now at like 30% win rate. And his response to me, bear in mind, like five minutes later, I came out with a tear in my eye. So you can see where this is going. His response to me was, sorry, Thomas, 200 selling days in a year. What you're telling me is he said, for 60 of those days, you're working for me. And for 140 of those, you're lining the, the pockets of our competitors. If you're going to come in like that, can you at least come in when you're working for me for the majority of the year? It's like, ouch. And it really stuck with me. I was like, geez, yeah. And I, and because I'm lazy in the positive sense, which is like, you know, I kind of don't like doing anything that doesn't have me moving forward. So I thought, wow, I just need to have my win rate higher. Mm. Well, if that's the case, then then I need to be really choosy about who I work with. So when I was last time I was repping, which is in Oracle, uh, at sales accepted uh, stage, um, there's a stage just after that where I've kind of got into the detail of qualification. And, and I had a 67% win rate. And I wanted it to be higher. Mm. But then guess what? Everybody in the business said, if Tom's working on it and it's at this stage, Law of averages are we're in it. So everybody lent in and got involved and, and just the rates just either maintained or just went up, you know, because everybody was leaning in. It created this environment. Secondly, though, I just had a ton of time to work on those deals or to go and find other great potential deals. But if I was losing for the majority of the time, 70% of the time, and I'm working those deals, I need to, here at Outreach, you know, any company it takes twice as long to lose as it does to win. Yeah. We all know that. But, you know, I have an IM. That's an hour long. I have a demo. That's an hour long. I'm probably preparing for an hour and what have you. That's three hours. Um, if I'm doing that 70% of the time, uh, these are, this is time that I should be spending building phenomenal pipeline on high win rates. So my number one criteria, I kind of don't really care about, you know, what – What's the number that you're delivering at the end of the quarter? If they've got a high win rate, they're going to be delivering a number. Mine mm. is, what is your conversion rate for me? I don't care how busy you are. If you're converting at a 67% tick, I can work backwards from that and say, right, I just need to get, if I give you a few more great opportunities, I can directly correlate what my output is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting insight as well that I hadn't thought about, which is, 
the the sixty seven percent that number well you 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 could do the maths on that and it's it's measurable. What isn't so measurable? It's the law of unintended consequences, which which is the 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 behavior of others when they see that. And you talk about the leaning in, yeah. which goes to support it, and 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 therefore becomes this self fulfilling prophecy almost. And it's interesting. And and you'll also see the opposite as well. That kind of I don't know what I call it. It's finance toxicity, or maybe that's that's probably too strong a term. But the the example is. Um, one of the best sales reps I knew, she worked for a big software company. Um, none you've worked for, by the way, so you can rule out some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she had a, like a, again, it, it, I, I, I can't work out the exact proportion in my head, but like she said, it was a one and a half overhead, 1.5 overhead uh, in terms of wins. And the company was a three to one. That's what they mm-hmm. had to have in their, in their pipeline. And she was obviously just very, she was president's club every year, top sales rep. And finance came knocking on her door and said, you need to up it to three to one. She, she couldn't understand this. It doesn't make sense. She said, yeah, but he says, that's what we, when we give visibility, pipeline visibility to analysts. And, and, and that, that thing is, is uh, controlled. You yeah. can go for jail if you, if, you, if you mess with that in the States. Mm. Is there was a three to one when they were talking to analysts. So, you know, if I have a three billion pipeline, then we're really kind of forecasting one billion of that will come in. And you're screwing with it, is what they said. Yeah. And, and so she just putting crap into her pipeline. Now, on the plus side, because she was a good, you know, she knew what she was doing. She said, I didn't spend any time on it. Yeah. But I threw it in there just to feed the wolves. How crazy is that? Well, so yeah. Uh, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In, it's, instead of asking, hang on a second, we're looking at evidence here that this is possible in this company, in this organization. Why can't we get other people like this? We dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. Well, yeah, I, you know, she needed one and a half X coverage to get to our number because that's where she's at. I've been, I've been reverse engineering and saying, right, how do we get more of those one and a half X kind of companies in there? Because, yeah, I'd love her to have three X pipeline as long as they were the deals that would have been in the one and a half X pipeline. Um, so it's about, it's about mimicking. What do they look like? There's a great story from, um, from big machines. Uh, so big machines, I think that's, that's uh, Goddard, Abel and Matt Gorniak uh, produced that company and they and real, and real big brains on those two. Mm. And what they found was, was, uh, that if they went and did a workshop with the customer, which is they traveled in the morning, they arrived in the afternoon, they did a needs analysis. And then the following morning, so they worked on it overnight, and the following morning they presented back the results. They found they had a 50% win rate. And they actually did is they found out if they went to, what was it? Might have been a 30 or 40% win rate. If they went to dinner, if the client went to dinner in the middle evening, it went up to 50%. And if the client paid, it went to 90%. Right? <laughs> so, you know, there's these three things. So yeah. um, so it got to the stage where the good reps forgot to take their wallet. <laughs> so well, <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they pay, then we're, then we're good, yeah? Uh, yeah. And and they would speak to the PAs to have them book dinner, you know? So it's just kind of a fait accompli that dinner was going to happen. They engineered the process. 
But what was critical for them was uh, from the top of the organization to the bottom, if somebody wasn't willing to do a workshop, they weren't willing to, to work with them. I, I mm. would rather walk away from a few false positives yep. than not have the work. The workshop meant I had a 50% win rate on aggregate. Yeah. Everybody would take a 50% win rate. So if you don't take a workshop, we're not working with you. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. Um, I've seen other, somebody else I was talking to had something similar with tours, whatever kind of business they're in. If they, people would come and do a factory tour and, and see around the business, that yeah. when, when, when they committed to that and invested their time, their normals went up. Can I share with you a really good one as well for anybody who wants to pursue this idea of if the client or the prospect pays? Yeah. Uh, I had one once and it worked out really well for me. And it just it was one of those things that came out of the blue. I was with this guy. Uh, you might actually know him because you worked. he worked in Oracle for a while, but before he was in Oracle, um, I was meeting him for lunch and it was you know, a, a closing call. Are we, are we going to work together or not? And it, you know, those awkward moments of who's going to pay. This was at the beginning. And I said to him, I said, I tell you what I said, so we're not arguing later on over who's going to pay. If we're going to work together, I'll pay. And if we're not, it's perfectly okay. You pay. How about that? And he just smiled and said, sure. And then, of course, come the end of the meal, what happens? Who's paying? He, Paul, Paul, he says, you're paying. I thought it was a really nice little close to using yeah, yeah. that. But it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's about bringing the topic up in, in some creative way as well. Yeah. Um, something else you said, and I'm conscious we're just up on time, Tom. Um, <clears throat> you were talking about the when we were talking about individuals and I wrote this down about how to, I know what it was. You were saying that rather than be you, be the hero in their story, that when they came up with something, you said, well, have you spoken about that and using yeah. some of the other reps in the team to kind of sharpen their own saws? And it was something actually Dave, Dave Matson told us once in a group about, he had worked directly for David Sander. And he said, David Sander had this thing. He was his three Ps. And I think this speaks to what you were saying. He said, when managing people, he says, I give them permission, potency, and protection. Yeah. Permi permission to screw it up. Yeah. Brilliant. Potency, you know, will sharpen the soul, will work on the coaching and on the training, and then protection also from, I guess, the, 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 the business, maybe, and customers, whatever it needs, but, but they felt protected. They felt safe yeah. in, in, in taking risks. And, and I just really like that idea. And I just, it reminded me of what you said. I think it sums it up. It brings it together quite nicely, those three Ps of, of leadership. Yeah. And then promotion is that element of, you know, have them be the thought leaders in the group. Great. Do you know what? Now we have the four Ps. That is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I like that. And of course, now that we have four Ps, this is no longer the David Sandler method. It's now yeah. the Tom Casley because you've added to it. You've changed the <laughs> recipe. <laughs> you know, I just by adding a little extra ingredient changes the meal. So changes. Yeah. This is your. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> good stuff. Um, anything else, Tom? That just you feel is important when it comes to sales team performance. Imagine yourself now that you've been invited in to talk to a group of aspiring leaders and you want to kind of give them your top tips 
the lessons, the, the mistakes you've benefited from and the lessons you've learned as a result, what are the kind of things you'd be saying to them that we haven't covered yet? Uh, yeah, well, the one, because it's vitally important for me, is, is breaking down their number into the constituent parts. So rather than being a big problem is lots of small problems. So uh, how do I break down my year, whether it's down to activities or whether it's down to size of transactions, how much revenue do I need to close a day? You know, uh, which accounts am I going to speak to? Can I break them up into categories? Um, you know, concentric selling, you know, sell to companies like the ones I've just sold to. So who's the next nearest competitor? All of these things demystify and, de and, and make far less complicated the process of getting from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Mm. The second part of it is um, uh, all good salespeople today uh, are great storytellers uh, and you have to work and develop that skill. Um, you have to be able to relate pretty complex stuff uh, across to the audience. And if you can't, uh, there's, there's an element of storytelling, but whether, whether it's just uh, analogies or, or stories, you have to have got that nailed. And to be able to tell a good story, you have to understand your product or service and the impact that it has, because otherwise you can't make it relatable. And what is it you feel that people don't understand about storytelling that if they did, they'd be a lot better at it? Um, well, one of the things is they, they, they talk in the first person too much. So they talk about their product or service. Uh, one of, one of, uh, two tactics I give people around first, at the real beginning of a story. So a story can be three sentences long. It doesn't have to be chapters and, and what have you. So uh, number one is uh, if somebody asks you what your product or service does, something I learned from you was if you asked our customers what we did, they would say, now I'm telling a story because it's not about me. Mm. And I typically don't talk about features and functions at that point. You typically talk about outcomes and benefits. The second one is um, when talking about the issues or challenges that your product or services overcomes is uh, rather than talking about, oh, it's brilliant, you can do this, this, and this with our product, is uh, start the story off with um, previously when talking with folks like you, they were sick and tired of. And if you can say sick and tired of at the front of it, what you'll find out is an issue or challenge that somebody was facing that they decided was important enough to do something about. Mm. And that's what you're, you're overcoming the status quo. Mm. Very few people. That, yeah, go on. Yeah, I was going to say that it's that emotive language, I think, is what you're yeah. saying is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and that's two good ways to start off stories. And then, you know, and listen back to this call right? between the two of us, we've probably told about six or seven stories on, on this one hour call. Yeah. It, it's having a library of those and being able yeah. to recall them. Uh, and that's how you get really complex information across in a way that can be consumed by the masses. And, and that's yeah. what we need to do in sales. Okay. Sounds fantastic. Tom, I, it might be worth actually, cause I know we have a number of planned sessions off the top of my head, and I could be wrong on this, we'll clarify it. I think we're going to be talking about hiring and recruitment next, mm -hmm. next month. But maybe storytelling deserves a, 
a session in itself where we can kind of break it down in its in terms of structure and give some examples. Yeah. I know you're a wonderful storyteller. You're very good. And I think you 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 don't commit the sin a lot of people do is that they 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 believe that it needs to be precise and true. And it doesn't. It needs to be about a truth. It needs to be real, but it doesn't have to be that specific customer and that specific pain. That storytelling, mm. the stories are stories. Yeah. Um, and I think people, I, I think, worry about that. But I, it probably deserves a slot in itself because you're right. If it, if it is that important as, as, as I think we agree, then we should probably talk about it a bit more and, and help people through some examples so they yeah. can see what a good story is. Because again, people will often think, well, they'll see somebody tell a, a story in the pub, for example, and they'll, you know, and, and, and it's a funny story and they'll, they'll go, I'm not that guy. And, and, and they, they yeah. misinterpret it. I tell you, if we want to to put ourselves both under pressure, is uh, not everybody likes every film they go and watch. So not every story is a good story. What makes a story relevant uh, is based on not just what we heard, the facts, the figures, the scenario, uh, is listening more to the individual, speaking to her about what are their emotional drivers, what's their currency in life, what are their values. And if you start to listen at a different level to your prospect or customer, it allows you to pick the right kind of, is it a horror, a thriller, a comedy, mm. slapstick, whatever. Is it, you know, is it black and white? Is it color? Is it a musical? Is it not? It's, it's, it's picking the structure of the story, which is in sympathy for the person you're talking to. Mm. Uh, and, I've found in the past some people have tried storytelling. It's failed because they keep telling horror stories to people who like Disney movies. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's true. It is. It's, it's, it's a wonderful area. We'll, we'll spend some more time on it for sure. Just before mm. I let you go, there's a comment in from Andrew. Uh, uh, this is on the paying the bill. He's definitely going to use that technique. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. 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 You can say, it's just, if you get the deal, just bottle of whiskey. Yes. <laughs> Always give them a little something. For Tom. Tom's given up his time today to join me. So uh, <laughs> Tom has given far more insight. But uh, th thanks, Andrew. Thanks for uh, dropping that in. All right. Good stuff. So what I'd like to just invite people to do is if they have any questions for Tom for next month specifically. Well, we, 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 if you have any questions from today's conversation, you can certainly put those in chat and we can deal with them when we come back. Uh, also for next month. We're going to talk about hiring and recruitment, I believe. And again, if you have any questions about that, get them in advance and uh, we can make sure that we, we, we bring them up on, on the chat. With that, Tom, I'm going to let you get back to the rest of your day. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, as always, not just a pleasure, but also I, I've, I've learned so much. You're, you're always just chock full of insight and uh, a, a joy to talk to. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Love it. Have a great day, Paul. And thanks right. everyone for listening. All right. Thank you.